Hey, welcome back to Falling Out. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with me thus far. If you're just joining us, then welcome. I've got a few administrative updates to go through before getting to this week's episode. Uh, Number one, let's talk about stats. Let's talk about progress. Uh, Again, pleasantly surprised by the uptake here. We're currently sitting at over 3,000 listens. Uh, It's been less than a month since going live. 3,000 listens. I will take that as a success. Um, But I'd like to do more. I'd like to get better at promotion and all that sort of stuff. And honestly, my time is kind of limited. So um, if there's anyone out there who would like to get involved with uh, sort of the promotional side of things or just kind of helping to get the word out. I've got some ideas and would love to connect. Um, Contact me. Let's talk about it. See if we can do something. Um, Let's move on to other points of interest. I was looking at the stats here. This is quite interesting. So um, if you look at Spotify, which is 30-40% of the listenership, who are you out there that's listening? That's a great fucking question. Let's answer it according to Spotify. Uh, start with age. Um, biggest two groups are between 18 and 22. That is awesome because there are probably some young people out there who haven't left yet and are listening to this shit. Then fuck yes. I'm really happy about that. 18 to 22. Listen if you're in the Unification Church and make your own mind up. But I hope this helps you do that. Uh, 23 to 27 is 10% of the listenership. 28 to 34, 22% of the listenership. 35 to 44, that's my age group. That's another 20, 29%. So the biggest two contributing groups are, are 35 to 44 and 18 to 22. That's quite interesting. Uh, 45 to 49 is 8%. And then, fucking love these. Two, only 2%, but man, I love these numbers. 60 to 150 years old. <laughs> Whoever's out there at 150, God bless you. Please keep on going and, uh, you know, contact me. Stay safe amidst this uh, COVID shit. Um, But God bless you for for sticking around that long. Um, Spotify also gives you some other interesting statistics. I mean, there's there's a lot of shit here, but uh, I thought this was quite funny. Artists that the audience of this podcast are listening to. This is kind of cool. This actually changes. Pretty regularly, I guess. But at the moment, top is Taylor Swift. Second is Billie Eilish. Third, John Mayer. Fourth, Ariana Grande. Fifth, Ed Sheeran. Y'all are some pop, sugar pop listening motherfuckers. You, you need to get a bit of like, you know, edge to your to your listenership. Just saying. But beyond that, I love you. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about this episode. Uh, this is with Faith Yen, and this was a great interview, different from the others because Faith grew up in a different place and at a different time. I um, thought that was really interesting. This is also where we dive deep into the whole Hunger Games shit. I mean, yeah, she grew up on the west coast of the U.S., which apparently was called District 12. So, yes, we grew up in the Hunger Games. There's all the proof you need. Um I don't want to spoil too much, so I'll probably shut up here in a second, but 
just a couple of administrative items just in terms of timing. Just so you know, this episode was recorded in October of 2020. Uh, it was also recorded uh, over Zoom with Faith sitting outside at a cafe in California while I was at home in London. Uh, so you're going to hear some sort of cafe and sidewalk noises around you. Um, I think that just adds to the charm, um, but just in case anyone's wondering what's going on there. Um, here's a quick bio of Faith. Faith Yen was born into the Unification Church in New York City, but she grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Faith's family experienced unstable housing throughout the Portland metro area and severe poverty due to her immigrant mother's untreated mental health disorders and her father's alcoholism. Faith relied on local Unification Church activities and the generosity of other families in the UC for shelter from her physically and psychologically abusive parents. Faith became a respected Unification Church youth leader to distance herself from her family and earn more perks from the church bureaucracy. She started questioning whether the Moon family was legitimate at the age of 18 after the head pastor of the U.S. Church fired her and more than a dozen hardworking members from their jobs at what was called Love and Life Ministries with no explanation. From that moment on until her mid-twenties, Faith questioned every tradition she had been raised to believe and tried to find common ground with the rest of her family to no avail. At 25, she cut ties with her old church community in Oregon and became a first-generation college student in Southern California where she studies business management. Faith is a passionate advocate for meditation, quantum healing, and eco-minimalism. She creates resources specifically for fellow human trafficking survivors. Yes, that's what this shit is. It's human trafficking. On her YouTube channel, Faith Yen. Yen is spelled Y3N. Here it goes, folks, my interview with Faith. All right, we're rolling now. Um, so, uh, Faith, welcome to the show. Um, I'm now speaking with Faith Yen. I'm sitting in London. Uh, Faith, where, where are you sitting at the moment? I'm in Long Beach, California. Long Beach, California. And uh, for those that can't see, uh, it looks like she's sitting outside under a, like at a cafe on, on a nice sunny day. It actually looks pretty, pretty appealing. It looks <laughs> like you're, you're It was raining earlier, but it's never not sunny in California, yeah, yeah. I guess. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I guess to start off with Faith, I wanted to just sort of help sort of like place you in the space-time continuum of um, Mooney second generation. Um, I love and that. So, and so um, I, I guess, so number one, I guess, if you don't mind sharing, well, A, like, well, okay, when you were born and where you were born and sort of where, where, you, were, where you were raised and kind of where you, where you, spent, where you spent your life, because um, that's kind of, that's interesting backstory, especially as we, as I compile these stories, I'm realizing like, you know, my story, I, I, I know I'm roughly a decade older than you. So my experiences were different from yours. Um, most of the people I've, I've interviewed so far have been sort of of a similar age to mine. So it's, it's, it's interesting to, to interview someone who's younger than me. Um, so can you just, yeah, just kind of talk, talk us through like where, when and where you were born and sort of where, where you were raised. I think that'll, that'll help Absolutely. Us the, the conversation. Um, so I'm 28 years old. I was born in like late 
91, like December of 91. Okay. Uh, I was born in Manhattan because both okay. of my parents were working at the New Yorker Hotel Okay. Uh, when they decided to go to a matching that I guess, a matching and blessing that was in uh, Madison Square Garden. Well, yeah. actually they got matched a good time before that. My parents were kind of odd in the sense that they actually like kind of dated each other long distance before they got blessed. Oh wow! They got okay. to know each other for about six months. Um, my okay. mom's from Australia. Okay. Uh, my dad's from Portland, Oregon, kind of like in the hood area, like St. Okay. John's. Like grew up in a trailer park situation. Okay. Um. So wait, and can I had, ask? Did did they know each other before joining the church, or they kind of like no, they, they met did each not other in the church? All. Okay. Okay. They, my they were both very hardcore into the doctrine, and my mom was actually one of the first. Uh, female Australian members at all period okay. she was recruited by uh, a pretty prominent um, figure in the London community actually um, okay is, is we're that already at a name <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah it doesn't take long right is that person yeah. uh, from Australia the the person that you're no. talking about in the London community she's, okay she's a British woman yep okay um, her and okay. her husband are like leadership figures in the London community. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, so my parents got matched. They like were uh, writing letters for six months and then they got blessed in Madison Square Garden. Okay. And then literally we were like living in New York um, and it like a month after I was born. So like January of 92, okay. that's when Reverend Moon made the announcement that everybody had to move back to their husband's hometown and yeah. start home church. Yeah. Uh, Cause it was too crowded at the New Yorker hotel and the health department was asking questions. Yeah. So uh, my parents up and moved to Portland uh, where okay. my dad's from. And uh, I've moved about 15 times since then. Wow. Like my okay. family would move like every two years cause they just really okay. struggled to find work like outside of the church bureaucracy yeah um so i grew up in the pacific northwest um i loved that i was born in manhattan though and i became obsessed with new york city and i later moved back for about four years okay uh, when i was like 18 um but i mostly grew up in the pacific northwest area um and like i mentioned i was like just at the beginning of that baby boom for like home church so in okay. my age group uh, there were like 300 plus kids in the Pacific Northwest, like Whoa. summer camps alone. Okay. Um, and just like my younger sibling who was born like five or six years after me, um, yeah. like her, it w just wasn't the same. Like she was at the tail end of that bell curve and like the, uh, okay. the population okay. size for camps when she was growing up was like less than half that. So it was just like a really okay. interesting, yeah, wave of. So there were a lot of you. So when you say 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 age group, like three hundred kids in your age group, like how many years does that age group span? Um, like I'd say the the camp counselors when I was growing up, they were like, um, I guess they're in their early to mid thirties now. Now. Okay. Um, yeah, and then the the kids that I was watching when I was a camp counselor they're like in college right now they're like okay. 18 19 okay um maybe 21 ish yeah okay okay yeah no that so is we a big, had, yeah that's a that's a big group um and i mean so one of one of the sort of like threads that's that's coming through throughout this project is is trying to just like estimate like how many of us there are out there um and actually just to i just want to like circle it back to you mentioned you mentioned your your parents getting married in Madison Square Garden. I'm, I I actually did some homework before this and started uh, 
like trying to piece together the history of Unification Church mass weddings effectively. Uh, and so the Madison Square Garden was in 1982 uh, with 2,075 couples. Um, I believe that was the only one in Madison Square Garden. Um, so I'm assuming that's when your parents got married, it would have been in, in 82. Uh, it's entirely possible. Okay. Okay. All right. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, my parents were 80. Yeah, they're in their 60s. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds, that's reasonable. Um, so yeah, my parents were in the 1800 couple blessing, which was in 1975. Um, before that, there was 777 um, plus a few other ones. But, you know, you, you put those together, that brings you to like four or 5,000 couples. Um, you know, let's say every fa each family had on average two or three kids. That's like... 10 to 15,000 out there. Um, but the interesting thing is if you look at the numbers and this actually shocked me as I was, I was ahead of this, this interview, I was trying to figure out like, like when, when the peak boom was. Um, and apparently there was one in 95 with 36,000 couples. Uh, and I don't know like how accurate that was. And I think at that point they were like starting to add in other people who weren't like really Moonies getting, blessed as well or it could have been second gen getting blessed by that yeah point. or it could be second gen as well yeah exactly um but that's a lot i mean think about going from 2000 to 36,000. that's you know 18x um over the span of of 13 years um so if that's true then you know those kids that were born of from those parents in 95 they're going to be you know probably in their 20s now um so or early coming into their early 20s now um so i I guess all that means is like, I'm actually kind of hopeful that maybe this, whatever I'm doing here, will, will can gain a wide audience amongst those kids who need some help. Um, and that's only one. There's more, there's like 97, 99. There's, there's a few more. So there actually could, there could be wow. a lot of us out there. There could be a lot of us out there. Um, yeah, actually. So I have a YouTube channel where I talk about my life in the unification church yeah. and I already have like, people like kids from Alabama and kids from like random places I've never wow. been to before saying that they're younger than me and they've they're because of my videos and other things that they've been researching they're like starting to wake up from oh amazing the Moonies and realize it's not normal I just totally yeah I guess I totally oh. forgot that there are people like younger than me and people outside the community because I know yeah. the Pacific Northwest community has pretty much died out like okay everybody kind of woke up it's only okay. like parents 60 years older or so that are like okay. still going to Sunday services. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that's pretty common. I think like, you know, my parents are on the East coast, but by, by the way, I grew up in the New Yorker hotel as well. Uh, or I was born, mm. born in the New Yorker hotel. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, I have like more of a connection to like the East coast uh, and I think it's mostly old folks there <laughs> effectively that are, that are, that are still doing this. Um, yep. So when did you, how old were you when you left? Like how recently did you, did you leave the, the movement? That's a really difficult question because it wasn't like I woke up one day and flipped a switch and was like, I'm a heathen now. Mm. Like <laughs> mm -hmm. it was um, an extremely slow and painful unraveling. Yeah. And I sort of like broke off my connection with the Moonies and all of my friends and my nuclear family, like chunk by chunk. Yeah. Um, so it actually took a long time. Uh, the way that I describe it is um, I was 
19 years old, 18 years old, when I was like kicked out of my job at headquarters because of bureaucratic okay. drama. Okay. Um, and that really like shocked me awake in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, and so I was just like really confused because that's not how my community in the Pacific Northwest would have treated me at all. Yeah. Um, and so I started working at a regular like secular job and started making friends with people who wanted to get to know me and kept asking me questions about my beliefs and my mannerisms like very politely so like between the ages of 18 to 22 I was like mentally leaving the church okay but then I moved back to Portland and became physically dependent on my nuclear family again so yeah. I was still physically dependent on like those friends and that sense of identity for like another three or four years. So I okay. would say I've only actually been financially and mentally independent from this movement for the last year. I had only like a year. Okay. Oh, wow. So you're like, like fresh, <laughs> fresh off the boat. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean like three years ago I had a full blown like panic attack where like something something snapped like some last layer of brainwashing like really broke for me and that was very mixed in like with my own personal like family drama as yeah. well just like something about the way my parents talked to me and talked about people outside the church like some three years ago was when something just like clicked and i was like this is so fucked up like this is not okay yeah so i would say that was like a major turning point and that feels yeah. like when i truly left but i was still okay. financially dependent on the church for like another three years so what, i've only what, been like fully out for a year okay wow um so what was it like when you talk, say like you know they the way that they would talk about others like something something clicked what what would they say what was what was the thing that that clicked for you um you know i was having a really hard time on the East Coast after Reverend Moon died, especially. So like I was um, starting to drink and starting to question why I wasn't dating and starting to question a lot of the traditions that I had sort of taken for granted. Uh, for a couple years, like there was a gap of a couple years between when I got kicked out and started doing that and when Reverend Moon died. Um, so I was already kind of shaky when Reverend Moon died and then Moon died and his daughter, Injun, like all of these okay. scandals and affairs, like yep. documents proving it hit the internet. Yep, I remember that. And like, I went from being like the most goody two-shoes, gung-ho, like hardcore Mooney girl ever to yeah. being like, this is a fucking scam. Yeah. Like, this is not okay. Um, I don't believe in the, the Moon family anymore. I don't believe in the Moon as a non, like the Moon estate as a nonprofit organization. I don't yeah. believe in that anymore, but at least I still have my family and my friends in the Pacific Northwest who use the doctrine and their interpretation of the doctrine to try to be good people. Like, at least mm. I have that, right? Yeah. I know that yeah. if they, if they say what, if they mean what they say, and if they live by their word, then it shouldn't matter that I've been drinking. It shouldn't matter that I have a boyfriend. They should be excited to meet my boyfriend the same way that they were excited to meet my younger brother's girlfriend uh. after he joined the army. Um, and if I'm sad and depressed because I'm confused and I feel like my whole identity is unraveling, my parents should be excited to take care of me. Mm. Um, and that's what they said when I talked to them on the phone uh, from the East Coast. But that 
is not what happened when I moved back home. Uh, and my parents quickly fell back into habits of narcissistic abuse. Um, I started seeing very clearly like the sexism that my dad and his redneck family have always mm -hmm. had and always done to me. Like I started seeing it clearer than ever. Yeah. Um, like they had no intention of ever really teaching me how to drive. I had to demand Whoa. to be taught how to drive when my brother was learning how to drive. Um, they Whoa. had no intention of ever matching me, but they were getting ready to match my younger brother. So like my dad's whole, both my parents like come from similar sort of like white trash backgrounds where like the dads got away with sexually abusing okay. like their own children, like their own nephews and nieces. They got away with Whoa. like affairs and like all this kind of stuff. And I think both my parents joined the church to try to live differently. And the thing that sort of appealed to them that was like the common denominator in Unification Church was the blatant misogyny and like the blaming mm. of women for everything. Yeah. Um, but they would try to, you know, like the church tries not to phrase it that way. They're of like, no, not. like men and women are equally like, yeah. they're equally valuable. Like, they're, but then yeah. when you get down to it, it's like Eve is blamed for all of the sins yes. of mankind. And if yeah. you wear a spaghetti sap tank top, you're like, expelled from camp and like yeah. you're a harlot you know what i mean yeah yeah so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we had crazy rules like you couldn't walk around with wet hair if you were a girl you couldn't yeah. eat a banana in front of boys yes like, i remember i was gonna existing say existing is too sexual <laughs> i heard the i heard oh, the gosh. banana i heard the banana thing and i'll like <laughs> like it's like if you can't watch another human being eat a banana without getting a boner like i don't know what to yeah. tell you like, you need to just stay inside like, yeah. you're yeah. never gonna hold a job like just go home yeah there's a real there's a real fundamental problem if that's just like an <laughs> affront to like the way you view the world working is is, is that i mean come on I, so i was gonna ask you if if you had heard that because uh that is something that that i heard as well um but it's hilarious it's like it's like they told it to like the girls and the boys and it's like well hold up like some boys probably didn't even know like that that could happen sexually before. yeah they probably weren't even thinking like, that it was the parents like that. projecting yeah. and like exactly oh my god yeah 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 exactly <laughs> wild yeah i've so yeah i've heard i've heard i've heard both of those before it's hilarious that you've also heard that um do you okay so god i have a, I have a lot of questions i don't know i don't know where to start um so okay just kind of thinking about that about like the um those mechanisms of of control i'm actually kind of kind of fascinated fascinated by this and i'll, I'll tell you why basically i i have i am i have a theory that basically um well, i think it's more than a theory but basically you know the whole the church is basically populated by a bunch of people that are like shit scared of their kids having sex or doing anything anything sexual Absolutely. Right? um uh and that's just part of the doctrine right um but in terms of the application of that of that doctrine i feel like a lot of people were given a lot of free reign um so and and how that manifests itself is like you know this whole like eating bananas and and like and wet hair thing like that's the, apparently that's like some standard that was set somewhere and actually like made it to the east coast and the west coast apparently um but I would hazard a guess that there's probably things that you heard, like, you know, things that would happen to you if you, if you like masturbated or you had sex or you thought of a boy or stuff like that. Like, for sure. I heard some really extreme shit, but I'm really curious what you heard because I think it's probably different from what I heard and what from other people heard. Um, and I think if, if we put, if we connect all those stories, 
you're going to see just like how inconsistent the doctrine is, uh, or mm-hmm. that that's my, that's my theory basically for this like supposedly, um, you know, absolute truth, um, for every, every person that every kid that interacted with a grown up, every grown up's going to tell them, a, tell them a different scare story about why they shouldn't, you know, kiss a boy mm-hmm. or a girl or whatever. So I'm kind of curious, like, like what, what were the scare stories that you heard? Like, like what, what did you hear would happen if you, I love this know? question. Um, yeah. So those, those scare tactics and like horror stories that yeah. parents would tell us as if they were absolute scientific fact. Yeah. Like those were the memories that stood out the most uh, okay. from my upbringing because okay. it, it sort of directly contradicted um, like, like, cause we would go around calling each other blessed children. Yeah. Right. And we would say that we were bringing about heaven on earth and we were God's chosen people. And we are so happy and so blessed to be following the one true second coming of Christ. And like, we are so precious and God loves us so much. And yet, because you're so important, we have the right to use whatever means necessary to make sure you don't fuck up your life. You goddamn idiot. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's suddenly because you're so precious, you are a moron and I get to abuse you to make sure you don't fuck this up for everyone. Yep. And it's just like, it's such polar opposites and so those scare tactics like really jumped out in my mind and i'll always remember being like 13 or 14 years old at like a winter workshop in the pacific northwest and uh it was kind of late at night it was probably like our third or fourth lecture of the day after like a two-hour song section session which were uh thought step thought stopping techniques like now that i know the terminology Mm -hmm. for that um so this like first generation dad was doing like a q a kind of because i guess he had um gone with reverend moon on like a speaking tour or had spent a lot of time with him or something like that and um so somebody was asking like what happens spiritually to a second generation a bc if they fall if they have not just like dating and holding hands but like straight up penetrative sex before marriage like what's going to happen to their soul yeah um and he basically launched into this ghost story about how like reverend moon uh, was asked that question in Korea and he was shocked and stunned into silence. And he said, I need to think about this. And he fasted for seven days and he went off into an abandoned mansion and he like spoke to directly to God and members could hear him like howling and screaming and punching the walls and blah, blah, blah. And like build it up into this huge thing. And wow. finally, when Reverend Moon emerged from his sabbatical, like asking God this unspeakably terribly terrible question, Reverend Moon said, if a BC falls, uh, that BC's soul is going to be locked in a three foot by three foot trunk. And they're going to burn in the bottom most layer of hell for the rest of eternity. And the whole camp was just like dead silent. And we're just like, uh, (laughs) I was like 13 years old. And we'd literally just come out of a song session where we were singing like Eric Clapton and like Motown (laughs) classics about peace and love. Like, the yep. fuck like how do you, yeah how do you jump from one extreme to the to the other and like what's even crazier is that none of us were like this is stupid we were all like yep nothing to read into there yeah oh my god yeah yeah i've been there <laughs> like, I, I was that same 13 year old kid being like yep i get it that's yep, sounds that's reasonable to me yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god wow if any, you know like if anything it sort of makes sense why we would sing those happy songs with even more fervor because we had those like haunting like but what if our souls are burned for the rest of eternity like 
we better mean it. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what else I was told. I was um, told a lot of messed up stuff. <laughs> like, that's I was really... told painting your fingernails black was like inviting e- evil spirits into your life. And people would give me grief if I painted my nails black. But... Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure, you got, I'm sure you got a lot. I feel like every girl got something about like how they dressed. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's, I mean, like I, I didn't experience that, but I can only imagine like the the amount of like, you know, lectures that girls got um growing growing up um about this uh this whole thing to be Uh, fair i will say in the pacific northwest um boys got really like chewed out as well Uh, the pacific northwest i feel like more so than a lot of other communities i went to they were very on top of segregating boys from girls um and so boys and girls would have like separate powwows at a lot of workshops and that didn't change until like an older second gen that used to babysit me like traveled around and like got married and went to college and he's like this is bad like we're making these kids so socially awkward and like this was a really triggering like hard adjustment for me so he talked to the parents and was like can we at least have like girls and boys sit in chairs next to each other like in lectures like instead of segregating like boys on the left and girls on the right so i just i remember guys that i used to look up to as brothers in my community they would open up every once in a while and say that like their mom had told them that um, they were like, if they masturbated, they were a disgusting dog and like Mm, worse than, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't, we were just, we were, I think in the Pacific Northwest as well, we were like shockingly open about the biological differences between uh, men and women. And we sort of like adopted some of the educational materials from like stars. You know that program is like students, students, something students and teachers advocating for abstinence it's it's like an abstinence or something yeah yeah it's like an acronym that that like christians are trying to pump in public schools or at least they were okay so it's just like i don't know we were made very aware that for boys they're like visually stimulated and so like moms and people would jump on boys for that and okay okay i don't know okay interesting so it kind of it sounds like maybe Mm -hmm. it went both ways a bit more um in our community i mean i I heard i heard that shit too um not necessarily from my parents actually kind of from my not from my mom but from my dad i think and then uh, certainly at all the fucking workshops i mean oh my god every fucking workshops were next level yeah yeah (laughs) did you so did you um what about schooling like did you go to did you go to like normal public schools or did 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 they have like moody schools up uh, in the in the northwest like what, what was what was what was that like that's a great question um you know they definitely talked about it i think the families wanted there to be a mooney school Mm -hmm. um and i know that parents there like uh they just had um like a really superstitious paranoia about the public american education system in general Okay. okay um so it was almost like there was a, a hierarchy of preference when it came to schools for all the, the families in the Pacific Northwest. It was like, ideally, they would go to a Mooney school. So okay. parents that could budget properly, they would send their kids to GOP as soon as possible. Yeah, okay. um, I, I, did, I did GOP um, just, for, just for a year. Um, but what, mm-hmm. was, was the expectation like to go there f- like for multiple years? Like that, that, that was kind of like the ideal 
Um, you know, my parents were like super broke, white trash, so they didn't even see that as an option. They're like, no okay. fucking way we can afford that. So we okay. didn't really talk about it much, but okay. I know that like one or two families did ship their kids off for like as long as humanly possible, but yeah. almost okay. without fail. The kids who went to GOP like dropped out of GOP or got more fucked up and the parents changed their mind and like brought them back. So <laughs> I don't know. But like the hierarchy preference, it's like what a plot twist. They thought GOP would be like more extreme and it did the opposite. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, so the preference was a Mooney school and then second to that would have been like a private school. Um, okay. And then probably like a schooling and then public school was like, if you have well, to. Well, that's guess. like the last option really. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. I think some of the parents were a little more like relaxed about it, but they sort of counteracted what they assumed would be like the effects of public school by making sure, sure they got together with other families for Hundoke like multiple times a yeah, week. Yeah. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like they always felt like they had to balance out the effects of public school. Yeah. And sorry, um, just for people so, who don't know, Hundoke is basically reading the words of Reverend Moon effectively. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, so I personally, um, my brother was sent to a private Catholic school from kindergarten until like fifth or sixth grade. Um, I was sent to different like homeschooling programs. Like they okay. tried public uh, preschool for me and then something happened. Like I started getting into fights with other kids because I was regurgitating some of the stuff that my parents had told me to say to other kids. Oh, wow. And, like, nice. So rather than like change the ridiculous things they were teaching me to say they just sent me to the same catholic school that my brother at, was at for a okay. second uh and then they sent me to like a cheaper uh homeschooling program and then i think for middle school and high school they sent us both for public school because catholic school okay. is getting too expensive okay okay but yeah public school was kind of like the last the last option yeah last okay. option Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I don't, on the East coast anyway, I mean like we, there was a, a local Mooney school called new hope Academy in the DC area, which was oh, yeah. like, which was like K through 12, I think. Um, so, you know, certainly some people tried to send their kids there. I didn't go there. Um, but I don't necessarily think there was a huge like anti-public school sentiment like not it doesn't sound like like at least when when i grew up it doesn't sound like it was it was as extreme because most of the kids that i knew growing up on the east coast went to public school and, and it wasn't so a, i guess big a deal. yeah i should mention so the pacific northwest is really small community wise and like when we got together for workshops we would pull together all of the communities from the entirety of district 12 which is um shout out to game of uh, it's really called it's really called district yeah. 12 are you kidding me yeah shout out to hunger games that makes me kind of every day like oh my god like, <laughs> wait so how many states no. are in district 12 is district yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 so district district 12 <laughs> was um oregon washington idaho montana vancouver canada and alaska oh my um, god that's a huge huge area and yet when we all got together it was like 300 400 people max and even okay. then, some people preferred to go to like camp one heart in northern california if they could afford it okay um so yeah i can the whole like so seattle's a totally different vibe and there was actually yeah. like a clicky almost like war between kids in seattle and kids in portland because like kids okay. in portland were like more broke like more blue collar like more ratchet okay. and the kids in seattle like they went to public school they wore abercrombie and fitch like okay all that kind of stuff and we okay. were like 
going to Valley Village and like going to private school. But like yeah. Portland, Portland is interesting because we had families who um, had like applied their own extreme views and sort of like took Reverend Moon's doctrine and ran with it. Okay. Um, and sort of like applied almost like doomsday prepper yeah. mentalities to it. Okay. I should also uh, mention that, yeah, this or 12, we were yeah. like forgotten on all the emails. Like Reverend Moon almost like never visited unless it yeah. was to go fishing at his vacation house in Alaska. So like yeah. they had carte blanche to like make up whatever like yeah. they wanted to. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I remember growing up and, I, you know, on the East Coast, it sort of felt like there is this sort of like East, east coast like nexus kind of like you know new york up to dc was um and even that's funny there was actually kind of like a bit of a rivalry almost like this portland seattle thing there was like a bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a new york, new york dc thing happening um and then it was like california was like it's own was like another kind of center of gravity um i think mm-hmm. primarily in the bay area uh although actually la la too as well but yeah like pacific northwest and like you know, fucking Idaho and Montana was like forgotten. Like no one, yep. no one, no one ever talked about anything happening there. A little bit in Chicago, I guess it was like a bit in the Midwest. Uh, but I think the South was also largely forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like to me, it just felt like there were these two kind of like centers of gravity on the, on the coasts. Uh, but yeah, that, that Northwest area doesn't surprise me that they were kind of like forgotten by the bureaucracy. And, mm-hmm. and it also doesn't surprise. I was actually wondering it just seems like it would be fertile ground for just given like the roots of, of doomsday preppers in like in, in, in the Northwest. Uh, it just seems like you combine that with like, you know, Mooney, like, like you know, Mooney offshoots. It just feels like it's kind of a fertile breeding ground for cross pollination of those ideas. For sure. Yeah. I think my experience with the movement growing up was so different from like that of somebody who grew up in LA or like a major city because yeah. it was like um I feel like major cities where the moon family owned mansions and like hung out a lot um yeah. your activities were basically built around like following around whatever moon family member was present yeah. at the time yeah and sort of like people pleasing them and doing whatever they said yeah. whereas we sort of gave up any hope of like the moons actually coming and visiting so we like we every summer we were like making up new ways to like train ourselves to be better soldiers for god and like train ourselves for like the matching and blessing and it was like the parents had nothing better to do and they missed the old glory days when they were like traveling missionaries and going on exciting adventures so they would try to like recreate that hype and they'd be like okay this year we're doing an overnight hike up Mount St. Helens, the last active volcano on the continental U.S., and it'll yeah. build your character and blah, blah, blah. Like, I was doing um, Eagle Scout obstacle courses as a girl at, like, 12 years old. Yeah. They, like, rented out, like, a boy's Eagle Scout obstacle course, and I was, like, rock climbing and zip lining and doing all that mm. stuff to become, like, a better soldier for God. Yep. Like, training for the Hunger Games or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, <laughs> now for what? Like, yeah. I don't know. It was just yeah. really intense. Yeah um no it's, I, it's it, so i mentioned this on one of the other interviews that i did but um basically like like the unification church is 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 not alone in um instituting these really like sort of like high pressure tactics um for the the kids that are born into the born into the cult um mm. and if you read um uh again i think i've already, I've already mentioned this on one of these episodes but but um there's a book written by these uh, these two girls who grew up in the Children of God, which is a like very extreme cult with like worse sexual. Yeah, I'm abuse. familiar. Okay, okay. 
Um, but basically, they, they they talk about the thought process that the that the organization, literally the bureaucracy of that movement, went through, and they're basically like. Uh, okay, we have all these all these parents that like had this extreme conversion experience, um, but now we're worried. I and mean, when they have all they have all these kids, now we're worried that as the kids get older, they're not going to be as good members because uh, they're going to start questioning. So we need to uh, instill in them similar intense indoctrination experience or in, intense conversion experiences, uh, and so it basically came from the top within that, within that organization. Um, Dev, you know, like we need to institute this, this, these indoctrination programs for the kids. And it's my belief that that's what happened in the unification church as well. Like, I don't think it was an accident, all the shit that we went through. I don't think it was, I used to think it was kind of like just a, a bunch of like, well and in, well intentioned, but misguided grown ups, kind of like trying to do the best for their kids. But uh, after reading that book, I was like, holy shit that's exactly what happened to us um mm. so i actually I, I think it was much more nefarious much more sinister and much more controlled from the from the top down this idea of like of doing all this hardcore shit to, to kids to indoctrinate them you know now that you bring that up um i'm just like thinking of conversations i had with like different parents and like because the thing is I think it's a mix of both. Like, I think that's a good point. Um, Cause like, again, in the Pacific Northwest, there were so few people. It actually wasn't the parents planning these activities some of the time. Yeah. Like, especially the older I got and the older our, my parents got, like parents got tired. Parents had to work full time to keep paying rent and pay for high school and pay all yeah. that kind of stuff. So it was actually kids coming up with some of the stuff obviously at their parents' suggestion, like after having yeah. an intense childhood, I almost feel like, I know in the case of my parents and some of the other key players in my community, I don't think they even necessarily would have had to have been told twice by Reverend Moon to like make sure that your kids are well-trained, make sure that they have an experience like you did. I think they personally were like frustrated. I know that there was this like frustration from okay. first generation that like the kids weren't as excited as they were when they first joined you okay. know what i'm saying it was like almost okay. like a self-motivated i feel like they didn't even because again like we would find out that matching and blessings were happening like a week before they were set to happen like yeah. we were forgotten about constantly wow. in these meetings yeah so it was like it was honestly self-generated in my community mm, a lot of the time interesting like parents interesting. Okay. genuinely wanted to see their kids get as intense as they used to be it frustrated them that their lifestyle with a family wasn't as tight-knit and as structured as life on the compound or life yeah. like in a van yeah. so it was almost like them just wanting to bring back that old feeling. interesting interesting that's really interesting that's really interesting i hadn't thought about it like that um did your just speaking of, speaking of that what was like what was sort of like the structure of your parents life before you were born did they did they do the whole like fundraising for seven years or like i'm or like i'm just kind of wondering what their <laughs> i hate to use a moony word but i'm wondering what their course looked like um mm. like leading leading up to that um you know it's kind of sad but both of my parents absolutely hate talking about themselves they hate opening up emotionally uh okay. they're both like textbook narcissists Okay. Um, but, uh, I, so I know some details. I know that like 
they both joined when they were around 18 or 19. Okay. Maybe early 20s. Um, they both definitely fundraised for like at least five to seven years. Wow. Um, I know that my mom did a lot more traveling than my dad did. Uh, my mom for a while was speaking both French and German because she lived, she moved from Australia to like a, a mission center in Europe that would like take advantage of arbitrage um, okay. back before the EU had converted to the Euro. They would like, mm -hmm. so like their, their mission building was like in one country where the Euro was worth less i think and then they go yeah, yeah. across the border and fundraise and then make a profit on the arbitrage and then like Holy i remember her telling shit. me about that they were doing yeah they were, they were they were rolling the fundraising profits into currency trading for sure yeah oh my god that's <laughs> fucking hilarious that i mean it's kind of uh, i mean it's really fucked up the whole uh, the whole fundraising thing is fucked up to begin with but the fact that they were like boosting their earnings by by doing doing like currency arbitrage wow mm-hmm uh, and then for a while, my mom uh, lived in Quebec, Canada, um, okay. because she spoke French. Yeah. Um, and then she would take, like, illegal trips into the U.S., like, as an illegal mm -hmm. alien. Mm -hmm. um, and she was, like, a correspondent for, like, a, a Mooney newspaper in the Middle East. Um, so I just remember one time. She lived in huh? the Middle East. So she lived in the Middle mm -hmm. East. Wow. Yep. I remember one day she brought me into her room and she showed me this, like, photo album of uh friends she'd made when she lived in the middle east to, to report on like a conflict that was happening there like when isn't there a conflict in the middle east but yeah. like um i think that's where i get that's how i know that my parents were frustrated that like we hadn't been on those trips with them because like my mom was constantly trying to be a debbie downer in like the worst way possible like she would always make sure to be like no today we're not watching a comedy after dinner we're watching a documentary on the reality of aids in africa and like she'd pull me into her bedroom and she'd show me these photo albums of her time in the middle east and she'd be like see faith you see that building it's not there anymore shortly after this picture was taken it was blown up with a car bomb wow and this friend they're dead now yeah. and this friend and it was just like i don't know oh, like shit. they were really like in the cut they were really like out yeah. there fundraising in like war zones and like doing crazy shit i know there's photos of like my dad um i think the biggest like role that my dad had was he was like a fundraising captain and he okay. tried to be like the fun captain that was everybody's yeah. friend and he like took everybody to disneyland yeah. and like i don't know because he got he he is for the doctrine but he's he doesn't like being a debbie downer he wants to be the fun guy he's kind okay. of an alcoholic he really wanted to be a bartender at one point um and like he got kicked out of school for selling drugs he used to be committing fraud and stuff before he joined <laughs> the church um he they sent him on like a mission trip to russia so there are photos of him wow. in russia like protesting communism so they were really uh, okay. in it for like to fight the forces of evil and like yeah. do stuff like that. But they were never very like well-educated. They were never given like a lot of power in the church. So okay. I think that's why they struggled so hard when they had to find like a regular minimum wage job with no college degree in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to uh, one of the other episodes. I was talking about that. Like, so basically like what I, I felt, I feel like, my parents had a little bit of influence within within the church and like you know they could kind of it, 
they had a little bit of a say in, in like what they did within the church, not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, and also um, Teddy, another guy that I interviewed, um, his parents were like joined the church before me, before mine and like got blessed before mine. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, they also had, they also had like a bit of, a bit of clout uh, and could sort of, I, I don't want to say demand, but they at least they could, they, they brought something to the negotiating table and could kind of like get a bit more out of the organization um, or at least like stand their ground a little bit. Um, but I actually, I, 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 I I don't know for sure, but I feel like because the church is really like hierarchical and like the people in the previous blessings are like earlier members and like, you know, they're like respected and stuff. Basically, Mm -hmm. I I believe it's my belief that like people whose parents joined later uh, and were blessed later, those parents probably had less clout within within the organization uh, and probably probably like did more of the, you know, fundraising for five years in a van um, and, you know, going all, all over the world and doing this, this crazy stuff. Like it's more likely that they would have been foot soldiers. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like the slightly older, older ones would have could have been like commanders or managers effectively. Uh, and so I, I feel like for the kids, it's probably, it's probably led to, potentially worse circumstances growing up for the, for the younger kids because they didn't have like uh, their parents just couldn't negotiate with it, with the organization in ways that some of the, the, the older members could, I don't know, but that's my, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. And then also, you know, I did notice that some parents who went to the same blessing as my parents and whose kids, like I grew up with, like there's this family that basically adopted me for all intents and purposes. Um, And their father graduated from MIT yeah. or at least had like been attending MIT when he joined and finished his education at like the seminary school. And like, so he had a job with the church yeah. and he made some money from that. And they did have some clout. Like he would be flying to DC all the time. He'd be okay. like arranging meetings with different okay, um, like heads of state, like literally, mm-hmm. but um, he was like an exception. He was okay. an exception because of like the prestigious school he went to. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think like you were automatically given more clout if you started earlier and you were blessed yeah. earlier. Yeah. But if you were like a brand new foot soldier who showed exceptional talent or had yeah. clout of some kind in the outside world, then they would use you as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. My parents though, uneducated rednecks, not a chance. Not okay. a chance. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, I, I do think it, yeah, it's a combination of both. I think you're right. Like if you, if you have, if you have, if you have education and some, some skills that they can, that the organization can use quite frankly, then that gives you, gives you a bit more bargaining power effectively. Yeah. Oh my God. You know what that reminds me of? So I got fired from headquarters, right? Like yeah. actually my whole life, I'm glad we're talking about this because my yeah. whole life I was trying to like, counteract this stereotype that white people in the church are stupid that like young i don't know if that's how it was where you grew up but in the pacific northwest it was almost exclusively asian i was like the token white friend okay and we got roasted all the time like that's so white as like an insult became a phrase um that the kids had to be talked to about like um kids chanting like asian pride and like i got turned down from a potential matching that i tried to arrange with a matching advisor um and they didn't want me because I was white. And it was just Whoa. like, yeah. Um, so I was constantly trying to like prove that I was different and prove that I could be Asian too, I guess. <laughs> like, okay. Prove that I was like a hardcore Mooney. So I like Whoa. tried to learn to use chopsticks right away. 
I tried to like memorize the eight paragraph family pledge in Korean so yeah. that I could say it without reading it and be like, yeah. look, I'm not an incompetent Western member. And yeah. like, and I think that's why I took on so many leadership positions and I got a job at the church. And when I was fired because of my affiliation with Next Generation Academy in the Pacific Northwest. Let me just dive in here for a sec. Next Generation Academy was a youth program on the West Coast of the U.S. This is actually the first time I'd heard of it. I had to look it up, but yeah, it was a youth uh, service program of some sort on the West Coast of the U.S. Back to the interview. Like, okay. um, someone there tried to help me out. Like, this girl from Quebec who was going yeah. to Juilliard for the viola, she yeah. was like, Faith, um, I've heard you perform with the singing team. I've heard you perform at open mic nights. I think, so I go to Juilliard. I think if you took a few vocal coach, coaching lessons, you could make it into Juilliard and then Injun and Mr. Park would be happy to let you stay here. They wouldn't kick you out as long as you're like representing the church because you got into Juilliard. Um, and so wow. she like gave me a tour of Juilliard and I was like, cool. So where's the, the jazz vocal program? Where's like the rock vocal program? She's like, oh, it's opera. And I was like, excuse, uh, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like. I don't know anything about opera. I don't want to be an opera singer. Like, have you seen me? I'm ghetto. Like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I just knew that, like, to go, I was trying to go to different music schools. I was going to apply to, like, the new school of jazz. Like, that's also kind of why I moved to the East Coast was to go to, like, a music school out there mm -hmm. and be, like, a singer-songwriter, like, one of my heroes and, like, mm -hmm. just work for the church for long enough to, like, save up money and become an in-state resident and get that instant tuition. Yeah. And it's just crazy to me that, like, if I had gone to a more prestigious school, they would have overlooked the bullshit reason that they That's, came up with to throw me out on the street. Yeah. Just to have someone with clout. You know what I'm saying? That is crazy. Like, I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack in, in the story that you've just told. I don't even know where to start, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, well, this is interesting. This, so, you know, this idea of like, uh, like, you know, second generation having this kind of like racial hierarchy uh is crazy it's crazy to like like as i'm stating these words i'm like what the fuck am i actually stating this um, um but okay it it doesn't surprise me i don't think it was the same for me growing up but it also doesn't surprise me and i mean the the, the church as an enterprise is a, is a fundamentally racist like is built on a fundamentally racist foundation to begin with um mm -hmm. and it's actually there's a couple layers to it but for those that, that aren't familiar and feel free to, to, to add i'm probably going to miss a few layers of the racism here but effectively like okay um the messiah was born in korea because korea is kind is like sort koreans are kind of like the exact words where korea is the new jerusalem Korea is the new, like, <laughs> Israel. Yeah, okay. The new chosen people. Uh, so mm. there's a bit of inherent racism, racism right there. Um, there's also a ton of anti-Japanese racism. Uh, and mm -hmm. this is, uh, it's my belief that that is because Moon grew up in a North Korea that was um, uh, under the, the Japanese occupation. Um, and yeah. as, as a result, he has a ton of anti-Japanese sentiment. Um, and that has come through in the doctrine of the church. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. I think there's also, there's also a, another layer, like that's, those are kind of like the core racist elements. I'm sure that I'm sure there are others, but those are the big ones in my view, but there's also a really kind of like xenophobic element as well, uh, which cuts mm -hmm. across all races, which is, um, 
this idea that if you're born into the church, or sorry, if, if you're born as a second generation, uh, you are somehow like fundamentally different uh, than everyone else. Uh, and you're effectively like cr the church believes it's like kind of creating a new race of people without, without sin. Uh, and you exactly. therefore are like fundamentally better than the guy sitting next to you. Like literal, mm -hmm. literally, literally uh, if, if like by the church doctrine, if I had like someone who, who looked and like was ostensibly the same as me sitting next to me, but just wasn't born in the, born in the same place to the same parents. Um, I would be fundamentally worth more than that person. Um, yes. And that's, that's the core of the doctrine, right? Uh, so, so yeah, actually the Korean supremacy was taken to like an eternal spiritual level. So like okay. Reverend Moon, especially in the early days of the church, and you can watch a vice documentary by Steve Hawson. Yeah. Where he says that, like, literally, they were saying that the entire planet is soon going to speak Korean. Yep. Everybody has to learn yep. Korean because Korean is the language of the spiritual world and the language yep. of heaven. Yeah. And Korean food is holier food that has better yep. spiritual affiliations. And yep. if you sing holy songs in Korean while you're making Korean food, your house will be protected and like stuff mm. like that. Yeah. Um, so it was like this profound, like metaphysical meaning attached to it. Yes. And then like the, the Japanese, the hatred towards Japanese culture was to the point where like the whole church business, like corporate as a corporation felt totally justified in like double and triple taxing families into bankruptcy in Japan because yeah. they yeah. deserve it. Or yeah. And actually, actually and just, just like, I just want to give a bit of context there for people that are unfamiliar. So uh, the church, as far as, as I remember, the church basically demanded that uh, this is for, for me growing up on the East coast um, uh, of the U S basically um, it demanded that, that all, all members tithe 10% of their income, their pre-tax income to the, to the church. Um, but if you were a Japanese member, it wasn't 10%, it was 30%. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's that was like because every the, I think they the upped it for they yeah. upped it for every family they're like every family needs to donate 20 percent because we're not basic Christian bitches we're moonies so let's do better <laughs> than Christianity but if you're Japanese then it's 30 percent or 40 percent if you want to get extra credit yeah I'm saying yeah. But, yeah yeah exactly um, and then what was, oh yeah and then as far as creating a new race of people yeah. like so I have only started going to college recently at okay. like 28 years old okay um and wow. i went to like a physical anthropology class where we got refreshed on like the on gregor mendel's method of like crossbreeding um plants to see okay. inherited traits and i just remember having to leave class and like go and have a small panic attack and dissociate out of my body real quick because Whoa. they talked about how <laughs> um the terms he used to like track genetic mutations in pea pods was yeah. like the true parent this no. one is the true father this one is the true mother then you have the first generation then you have the second generation and he would track the genetic mutations holy fuck like yeah, yeah. That, i would i would fucking lose my mind <laughs> if, if that happened to me yeah. in the middle of the class <laughs> oh my gosh so like, and then literally, so you remember we were told like, it's all about the blood lineage, right? And that's yeah. why second generation can never, yeah. ever, ever 
have sex outside of the church or god forbid procreate outside of the church because you would be diluting your blood yeah you can't get a blood transfusion you can't Mm -hmm. be an organ donor because literally genetically we are tracking your genetic mutation we want to make you holier than the rest of the planet and see how far this goes yeah so it was kind of spooky kind of like eugenics in a weird way yeah exactly exactly there is this like Mm -hmm. eugenicist this this is xenophobic like piece to it in addition to the racist pro-korean anti-japanese sentiment like running through the whole thing um but if we go i want to go back to this to like your experiences growing up because i i I do remember there was i i guess there was a sense growing up in dc that (laughs) if your parents were korean or you had like one korean pair if you're like a a second gen you had like one korean parent that were kind of like more revered your parents were kind of like more revered as members um and you ended up being like a bit more respected um Mm -hmm. as a as a kid um and if you were i wouldn't say there's necessarily like I don't think it became as as extreme as extreme as as what you, was what you mentioned. But if I think back to like all the people that I knew growing up, um, and you know, forget what how what the kids would say to would say to each other. Like, if your parents were Korean, number one, they, they probably had church jobs that paid more than the jobs for the for the non Koreans. Uh, so you you lived in a better area, you went to a better school. Um, and you had this sort of like instant clout within the within the organization, um, and I don't think it like it never came out in the the, ex- the extreme way that you've just mentioned, but it was definitely like implicit through the organization. Um, is that yeah that that racism is definitely there. You know, when I think on it, um, like you're not the first person from the East Coast or another community who's like shocked to hear about like the race relations between DCs. Yeah in the pacific northwest and um i'm thinking this is just my theory um so first of all the community was much smaller in the pacific northwest yeah it was almost exclusively asian like we had first of all like oregon is the closest coast to japan and our district also had alaska which is uh pretty much where true world foods gets all of its fishing from it's like fishing boats in alaska let me just dive in here for a sec again True World Foods is a Unification Church-run business that is a supplier of raw fish, amongst other food products. Um, and as far as I understand it, if you're in the U.S. and you eat sushi anywhere in the U.S., more than 50% of the sushi in the U.S. comes from True World Foods. I think the same may be case in certain parts of Europe as well. So it's a big business for the church, uh, and it was a big deal on the West Coast, as far as I understand, a lot of Unification Church members worked there at True World for Foods, either on the fishing boats or in the offices or distribution or whatever. It was a big deal, and suffice it to say, I'm sure that many of them worked for well below market rates, uh, probably closer to slave slave labor rates um, for their efforts. Back to the interview. So, like, there were women in our community whose husbands uh, were gone like most days of the year because they were working on Alaskan fishing boats. Wow. Okay. And like um, we had people in uh, Canada communities who would come to workshops and stuff. And like their whole family like worked at different positions in true world foods, like the headquarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like the hub of a lot of like the Asian business transactions. Got it. Okay. Did. 
But then also the other thing, I think a lot of the reason the kids were like radicalized to be more like open about their Asian pride is because Portland and Idaho specifically, there's like a huge KKK population. Um, Like in Idaho, there are active skinhead gangs that even before Donald Donald Trump was elected, they like patrol the towns. They drive around and like throw beer cans at people and like destroy businesses that are owned by minorities. Um, when part of the reason I, reason I moved out of Oregon to California was because the same month that Donald Trump got elected, like this town that my community college was in, um, people started hanging nooses in people's front yards. People started writing KKK slurs on like the sides of cars and stuff. So it was like, I'm sure these poor kids, I didn't know any better because all my friends were Moody's. So all my friends were Asian. Like I literally thought I was the only white kid in Portland, which is hilarious to think about how white (laughs) Portland is. But these four kids whose parents let them go to public school, they were getting picked on constantly for being Asian. So like coming to church and church activities, like was the one safe space where they got to be proud of the fact that they were Asian. Okay. Okay. And they had a little bit of power. They had a bit of strength in numbers in that, in that environment. That's my theory. That's that's what I'm thinking. Or they could have just been rebellious little shitheads. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, also, so you know, we were talking about the GOP program earlier, and like, um, mm-hmm. I mean, my experience there was was described very eloquently by someone else who who shared it with me as Lord of the Flies, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I guess I'm kind of thinking of, <laughs> and that was like you know basically a whole bunch of teenagers no supervision, no parents, et cetera. Uh, it, this, you're, the way you're describing the whole like Pacific Northwest, or, like District 12, basically. District 12 kind of sounds like Lord of the Flies for, I, I like, at like kind of a, a larger level, like like just a mm-hmm. bunch of a bunch of Mooney families just kind of like trying to fend for themselves and create new roles as they, as they go along. And then mm-hmm. it's kind of created different like hierarchies and you know, mannerisms and stuff like that. Um, that's yeah. what it, that's what it feels like to me, anyway. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate synopsis. Although, like, it's so interesting how even though we were all in different districts, like you'd have groups of kids like go to Chungkyung repeatedly yeah. just to hang out with people from all over the world that they met in Chungkyung, and then they would take yeah. those influences and those ideas and come back and bring it to the community that I lived in. And because the community was so small, that idea would take flight and totally impact all of our lives. So how, stuff like that would happen all the time. How, so, okay, for people who aren't familiar, uh, Chungpyeong is a church, uh, like, workshop Village. Center, it's workshop an entire village, village in, in Korea. Korea yeah. In Korea. So how long were these kids going there for? And how um, many years ago? I'm, I'm trying to figure this out because I don't really know what the deal is with, with Chungpyeong these days, but I'm like... Yeah, how many years ago was this? And like, how long would these kids go go for? And how old were they when they were going there? So, you know, what's funny is like, I remember being dropped off at this random family's house for 40 days so that my parents could go to a 40 day condition okay. while this village of Chungkung was still being built, like while a hospital was still being built yeah. and the dormitories were still being built. So this would have been back in like the late 90s. Um, yeah. And as far okay. as I know, Chungkung has always made the most of its money by constantly year round just like back to back to back or sometimes overlapping they will charge several thousand dollars per person to have you live there for 40 days or 80 days or seven days or 21 days whatever they can convince you to do um and that's how they make the majority of their cash although they also have a cafe and like um 
a gift shop and like all these other things yeah. you can but buy those, there. And those aren't the real on. money makers, right? The real money maker is the brainwashing center where you do yeah. onsu and you slap the shit out of each other to try to get the evil spirits out of your body. Yeah. Um, and you fast and do all this crazy shit. So like there were kids, it really depended on who your parents were and how much they could afford. So my parents went personally and they, whenever they came back, they always talked about how they were sick almost the whole time and they'd be sick coming back and they had been picked on for being Western and they had tried to make their own hamburgers on little camper fires and somebody came and like stomped it out with their foot and said, you dirty Westerner. You have to eat oh Western. my God. What and a like, fucking dickhead. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like that's, those are the stories they always brought back. So my parents had no desire to send any of us to, but like all of our friends would go like, and especially there were some families like, who weren't the most broke and would have been a lot less broke if they hadn't constantly sent their kids to shop and gun. But yeah. there was like, there was like a handful of girls who like they would convince their parents that they wanted to go to Chungkang for spiritual reasons, or they would like develop an eating disorder and start hanging out with the wrong crowd in high school. And so their parents would just send them to like workshop after workshop, as long as it didn't interfere with like their education because okay. you can get sent to jail if you don't send your kids yeah, to school. What, so they just kind of like <laughs> but, go for a whole summer at a time basically. Yeah, literally like the kids would work uh, if necessarily like pick up a job just to save money to go to Chungkyung and spend money shopping in Korea. Like they'd spend an entire summer there, just like two 40 day workshops or however long wow. they could swing it. And they'd like hang out in Chungkyung with people from yeah. Paris, people from, the netherlands like that's really yeah. where you got to link up with like overseas like i don't know you could meet anyone in Chungkyung. yeah and like so you yeah. make these connections and make a plan for your life by meeting people in Chungkyung and like hanging out and all that stuff yeah jesus do you okay i actually want to just like rewind a little bit so you mentioned ansu uh, mm -hmm. i know what ansu is i have done ansu but for those for those that don't, could could you explain what it is? You know, I've only been to Chungkyung once. It was for okay. two days. It was an oh, okay. all expenses paid trip for me to be a representative of District Twelve at the anniversary of Reverend Moon's death. Whoa, um, okay. <laughs> real Hunger Games type <laughs> shit. But like, Whoa, oh so I've God. never done Ansu, but like, I have a bunch of friends who have been like the song leader at Ansu, and like, okay. there's a kid I grew up with who lived at Chungkyung and worked at Chungkyung for a good chunk of time. So basically, okay. Ansu is um, a bastardization of a famous Korean wives' tale tradition. Like, apparently, it's an old school Korean countryside thing where if you're sick, your grandma will come up and like smack you on the back to try to like convince the evil spirit that's causing your cough or your cold to like jump out of your body. And she'll do it a couple times and be like, eat the soup. Okay, slap, slap, slap. Okay, I got the got the disease out of you so reverend moon took that and turned it into a very strange like sexualized ritual um where you have everybody dressed in white so that the evil spirits can't stick to anything um and you like bathe for a certain number of times i think before you enter chungkyang and you like only eat certain types of foods so that your body is more pure and then you spend hours a day singing a holy song called grace of the holy garden a million times while people beat drums and you like basically smack yourself on different parts of the body. And it sort of becomes like a spiritual massage where you're like smacking the evil spirits 
out of your head, shoulders, knees, and toes. And there will be separate ceremonies where it's like, you got to smack the evil spirits out of your sex organs and they'll divide men and women. And like, you're supposed to help the people you'll cram together in a room, um, sitting on your knees, usually like maybe a hundred or 200 people in a room that's only supposed to hold 80 people. <laughs> and you'll like smack the shit out of each other and smack the shit out of yourselves to get all these evil spirits out. And you sort of get lost after a while into this trance because you're yeah. singing and slapping to the beat. Yeah. Um, I read recently on a forum that somebody knows of a child who was beaten to death. Holy um, shit. There were people who were like beaten without their consent. There were people who would get way too into like way too zealot about smacking the evil spirits out of themselves and other people and would like injure other people. Um, I don't know. It just has a very weird BDSM type vibe to it. And I feel very privileged that I never had to do that shit. Uh, yeah. But it's it really is an exaggeration of like an old harmless sort of like wives tale tradition turned yeah. into like a thought stopping technique. Wow. Yeah. Oh man, that, that's like heartbreaking to think of that kid. But oh, Jesus, yeah. that doesn't surprise me. Um, so yeah, I've I've done it. I've been to, I've been to I've, I did like a few days of onsu at Chungpyeong like many many years ago. Um, and I think the one, the one thing that I would, well, a couple of things that I would add is, uh, and you kind of alluded to this, but like, it's, it's really loud and really intense. And the rooms that I was in, I don't think it, it wasn't like two or 300 people. I think it was like four or 500 people. Maybe there are bigger rooms than, than the ones that you're Dang. talking to. So it's like maybe 500 people and there's a stage in the front and there's two people on the stage one is one is a drummer uh, and he's he's hitting a huge drum um going boom 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 lay, laying the beat down like the um, old school japanese style drum right yeah big big like japanese or korean style like traditional drums that are like almost as big as a person basically uh mm -hmm. and you, you hit it with one arm on one side and one arm on the other side um so there's someone hitting one of those uh and then another guy um almost like the hype man, like the Ansu hype man. <laughs> um, the is MC, like, is yeah. Like, yeah, is like leading the song, basically. Um, and yeah, so he's leading the song, but it gets so intense. That, and it, this, this goes on for hours and hours of them beating the drum and like 500 people singing, um, hitting, each, hitting yourself, hitting each other effectively. Uh, and you do, you kind of enter this trance. It's just some sort of like, like psychological group thing type of type of trance where you kind of you, you you do feel like weird shit in your brain basically um i've heard it called floating there's like a term yeah, for that that's where, a, that's, yeah. that's a good description that's a good description mm -hmm. um it almost feels you kind of feel like you're kind of like floating out of your body a bit um and that's it, the psychological term for what happens to your consciousness when you're trapped in a situation you're not comfortable with doing a repeated yeah. activity, like a chore or some sort yeah. of sexual slavery move or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Like cult members from all different types of cults usually experience floating or if you're trapped yeah. in like one of those uh, troubled teen camps and you don't want to be mm. there physically anymore, yeah. you sort of just float yeah. above your body. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of exactly what I felt. Uh, and I'm, mm -hmm. I would hazard a guess that most people in that room felt the same way. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's a pretty, it's a super intense experience. Uh, I'm happy to hear you never had to experience it yourself, uh, but thank you for describing. And I've also never heard the connection to the Korean, you know, old wives tale. Um, I learned that by working at that sales job I was talking about that I got when I was 18 because there was a dude who was half Korean, okay. but obviously not a Mooney at all. So he was like, okay. 
yeah, if, if I'm sick and I go to my grandma's house, she'll smack the shit out of me. I was like, what? He was like, what? yeah, she'll hit my back. <laughs> like, I don't know. I was like, dun, dun, dun. Wow. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I also, I'm just looking at, so one thing that, that I have written down here that, like, I just think I kind of want to, like, go back to is, um, you know, you mentioned this experience you had, you know, working in New York, um, kind of like getting semi kicked out of the job, but then being told that, oh, if you got into Juilliard, then in InGen, who's one of the Reverend Moon's daughters, would like let you back in and like give you your job back. Um, well, she would let, you, they would let me stay in the dormitories instead of be Okay. 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 All right. So not necessarily you can have a job, but have a place to live, basically. Yeah. Um, okay. And I just want to like, I just want to zoom in on that because like, I've, this, this is one of the things where I feel like if you're, if you're like on the fence about whether or not this is this whole movement is a good thing. Um, like just, I just want people to, to think about that for a second. Cause like there's this whole thing that's like in principle meant to be about people always, you know, looking out for each other and doing the right thing for each other and, you know, loving that dynamic and, you know, all this being all this... non-discriminatory because we're one family under God. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is this one family. It's a great, yeah, that's, that's a great way to describe it. Like is one family under God really like, decide whether or not someone has a place to live based on what university they may go to and, and, and the amount of prestige that you think that'll bring to the organization. Cause that's, that's what that was about. That was about, about you being paraded around as, Oh, look at, look, 100%. At, our, look at our brilliant, you know, look at our brilliant, you know, true daughter of God Juilliard who, who's, who's Juilliard. But if you're not in Juilliard, then fuck you. You're not worth anything. I mean, is that, is, is, is that, is that really what one nation under God means? Uh, Cause that's what the organization does. So for all y'all that are still in it, just, just think about that and ask yourself if that's something that you really want to be a part of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, okay. Hold on. Life, more questions here. Yeah, this is, this is, um, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. Uh, how are you doing over there? How's the, do you want to like take a, do you want to take a bite of that burger? Um, I kind of do. I yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Just, uh, um, you'll all get a load of this ASMR. <laughs> Is that like a fried chicken burger? Or no, I'm vegan, so it's a okay. Beyond Burger. Okay. Okay. Very nice. How do you think she liked her burger? You're going to need to wait till next time to find out. We cover that plus a whole lot more in part two of my interview with Faith Yen. Um, the next one, we talk a lot about specific resources that she's relied on. I thought it was really cool. She prepared a lot of information before the interview about books and essays and writers and people that had influenced her thinking when she was leaving the church. I thought that was really cool. So for the next episode, we're going to dive deep into that as well as a bunch of other related topics about leaving and what it's meant for her. Uh, suffice it to say, Faith has really had to rebuild her life from, from the ground up as a result of everything that she's been through. And I hope you'll stick around for part two when we cover that. Take care. Stay, stay safe, y'all. Faith, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I'm looking forward to publishing part two in the near future. Take care. Bye-bye.